Welcome to the Good Shepherd Church podcast. Good Shepherd is a gospel-centered church plant in Southeast Lakeland, Florida, and our vision is to join God's mission to see a glorious city filled with disciples of Jesus who are secure as children of God, connected as the family of God, and engaged as stewards of God's love to their neighbors and beyond. Here you will find sermons and other resources to help root and equip you in your true identity in Christ. We're glad you're here. Good evening, good afternoon. Guys, how are you? Good, good. My name is Jeff Skipper. I'm uh, one of the pastors over in Winterhaven at uh, Redeemer City Church, and it's so good to be with you guys. Uh, this afternoon, and um, I've been friends with Jeremy for quite a while, and I can't believe it's my first time being over to Good Shepherd, so I'm excited to be with you guys. Thanks for having me um, on this fourth and final week of Advent. Uh, you know, final, the kids have been asking how many more days, for like 40 days, and then my kids have been. I got three boys who are 6, 8, and 10. I feel like I always need to say that just so you can sympathize with me just in life and understand where I'm coming from. Um, but there's only a few more days. And there's been this sense of waiting in the air for so long, and the waiting's like a combination of excitement and just this impatient longing uh, from kids, and I think for all of us, just culturally, we feel all of that. We get into this Christmas season, and the church has a story to make sense of why we feel that way, uh, and we call the four weeks leading up to Christmas Advent. Maybe you didn't grow up in church. Maybe you grew up in a church tradition like I did that didn't really recognize or celebrate Advent. Advent is just a fancy word that means coming or an arrival, and it captures how we feel as God's people, kind of like kids waiting for Christmas. Uh, Simon and Garfunkel, I, I, I love music. They were before my time, but I've listened to my fair share of Simon and Garfunkel. They have a version of Silent Night, uh, which I think is so great. It's, it's called Silent Night slash 7 o'clock news. So you need to go listen to it. If you have Spotify or something, listen to it on the way home. It's super unique. The song starts out. Nice and soft, silent night, all is calm, all is bright. And then in the background, you hear this newscaster come on. And he's faintly giving the evening news of the time. This was released in 1966. And so he's talking about racial strife, uh, the work of Martin Luther King. Uh, He's talking about Vietnam. He says, you know, President Nixon says we're probably going to be in Vietnam at least five more years. Uh, There's murders that are happening in Chicago, I think, if I remember correctly. And at the same time, you're hearing holy infants, so tender and mild. And that's the best illustration that I've found that really captures the tension of Advent, right? Where we celebrate this Savior child, Jesus, right? God, come to be with us. He's bringing peace and hope, but he's coming into a chaotic world that's still filled with sadness and conflict and disappointment. And so we don't ignore either of those realities. When we come into this season, he came to make all things right, and yet the truth is, all things aren't right yet. And I think we have a tendency to fall into one ditch or the other when we think of the gospel or Christianity or Advent or Christmas, and one of those ditches is triumphalism. We say, he's come. Turn that frown upside down. It's Christmas. And at the same time, that may be... uh, Ignoring reality, right? It's it's living only in the already and not the not yet, so to speak. The other ditch that we can fall into is just being a cynic. 
just a defeatist mentality that, you know, nothing's ever going to change. And so as we find ourselves between the two comings of Jesus, to honestly reckon with where we find ourselves in what you might call redemptive history, we say on this side of the cross, we strive to do both, right? We strive to sing joy to the world, the Lord has come, and maybe during Advent you've leaned into the waiting and you've also sang, come thou long expected Jesus. And I always mention that because, you know, it caught me off guard as I got later in life uh, in the church traditions that celebrated Advent when we were singing songs in minor keys during the holidays. Why was everybody so sad? It's like, oh, well, everything's not right yet. We're still leaning into the sadness and the waiting and yet singing at the same time because he has come. And that waiting is what the people of Israel felt for so long, which you guys have been focusing on the last three weeks in the book of Matthew. You've looked at Jesus as the long-expected Messiah, He's the long-expected Savior, and I believe last week you looked at him being the long-expected desire of nations. And today we're going to wrap that series up by looking at Jesus as the long-expected true Israel, which may sound kind of funny, but uh, I think it's an awesome topic. I remember the first time I, I learned that. Uh, it's just really exciting, and, and it connects the Bible in a, in a really unique way. And so I'm going to read our scripture for this evening from Matthew 2, uh, verses 13 through 23. If you want to follow along, probably on the screen, I assume, or uh, if you brought your own Bible or your phone. Okay? So Matthew 2, verses 13 to 23. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and they went to the land of Israel. And when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. That what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. This is God's word. My eyes are getting bad. I should look at the screen the whole time. Just recognize that. Uh, we're going to look at three points from this text this evening. Uh, Israel, my son. Oh, nice. Jesus, the true Israel. And then finally, the Israel of God. Okay, so let's look at this first point. Israel, my son. Now, if you've been coming or maybe you know the Christmas story to a certain degree, uh, just to set up the context of where we find ourselves in the story, uh, Jesus has been born. We just finished the scene where the wise men show up, and there's the shepherds, and there's angels in the skies, all this stuff happening. And so we're moving on from that point. And Joseph has been warned about King Herod, who's going to seek to kill Jesus because he heard there's a new king in town. And I, I know I always think, Herod, what a terrible guy. Uh, but if you're really honest with yourself, is that not how we also respond when we hear there's a new king in town? The way my heart initially reacts that someone else wants to call the shots for my life, right? My, my initial reaction is slow down. That's, that's my role. Uh, until we find out what kind of king Jesus really 
is, which is the beauty of the gospel. So I can kind of relate to here a little bit here. Um, so anyways, they obey, and they leave town. Jesus is a refugee. They go to Egypt, which is about, the border of Egypt is about 90 miles from Bethlehem where he's born. And verse 15 says they actually wait for Herod to die. But is there something more going on in the text? I think there is. There's more going on than just a quick, random, unplanned trip out of town that no one foresaw coming because of the way Herod reacted, and so they just had to do that. Because three times in this passage, if you look at verse 15, verse 17, verse 23, only read 10 or 11 verses. Three times Matthew says, this was to fulfill. This was to fulfill. This was to fulfill. He says it 10 times in the book. So Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, and he's seeking to somewhat prove that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the promised one who would come, that they've been waiting on for so long, that he's their king. And so what better way to prove that Jesus is the one than by using their own Bibles, which was the Old Testament as we think of it, right? So you can picture Matthew furiously flipping through the Old Testament and pointing out all the prophecies this Savior was to fulfill. That's why he keeps repeating it over and over. He's pointing, he's flipping the pages, and he's pointing here. And he's showing how Jesus hits all of these prophecies, and he fulfills them. I mean, just before this, he quotes Isaiah. He says, the Messiah is supposed to be born of a virgin. Then he quotes the prophet Micah, and he says, the, the Savior is supposed to be born in the town of Bethlehem. And so here, he quotes, uh, he says that Jesus going down to Egypt, when he, when he uh, kind of, lays this out, he narrates this, that he's going down to Egypt, he quotes Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. He says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now the prophet Hosea had been around about 800 years before this. He was the last prophet before the nation of Israel fell to Assyria in 722 BC. So in the original context, Hosea wasn't talking about Jesus, right? He was talking about the nation of Israel and their story. Actually, if you go back to Hosea, and you read, you open to chapter 11, verse 1. This is the full verse. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And this is the Lord speaking to the prophet. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. He's recalling Israel's ancient past. So what is it? So we have to go time out. Let's put ourselves back then in the Old Testament. What is it with Israel? Why is Matthew bringing this up now? What, I mean, we're kind of, this is 800 years ago, Matthew. What, what's going on? Well, the story of the Bible is God made us, right? We sinned, man sinned, Adam and Eve and all of their children, and we became broken and lost in a world of darkness and death entered the world. And at that point, God began a great plan of redemption to save us and make all things new. And if you go back to Genesis, the way God begins that great project of salvation is he chooses a guy named Abram, he later changed his name to Abraham, out of the land of Ur, Ur. Excellent. I always find that funny. Ur, right? Israel didn't exist at this point. He just chooses this one guy, Abraham, to be the conduit through which God would bless the whole world. This is the world's train wreck, death, there's sin, all of these bad things, there's sickness, disease, all of this, right? I'm going to choose this one guy, I'm going to work through Abraham and his offspring to bless the entire world. I'm going to start with them, and I'm going to go out from there. And so over time, he made an entire nation out of Abraham and Sarah and their children that became known as Israel. That's the, kind of the evolution, so to speak, of the nation of Israel. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. 
And it was Israel's job to be a witness to the world of the one true God, of Yahweh and his salvation, to show all the other nations and the pagans to say, this is the one true God. And God referred to this nation, Israel, as his son. And that's what we see in that verse. And this is why, uh, during the final plague, when Israel was in bondage to Egypt, uh, the final plague was the death of their firstborn sons. If you look at Exodus 4.22, the Lord says to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. And of course, he says, if you, if you do that to my firstborn son, guess what's going to happen to your firstborn sons? Right? Tell the logic in the Passover narrative right there. And so when you see that term son, it's kind of a loaded title. It carries a lot of history and significance in the Bible, and Matthew knows this. And so what this quote from Hosea does is call to mind Israel and their story as God's son. How God created them as a son. He made covenants with them. He raised them up like a father. He disciplined them as his son. And yet, in the end, the Old Testament ends in darkness and exile. Right? They failed to keep God's covenant. So you get to the end of the Old Testament, and this whole salvation project for Israel and through Israel seemed to be a failure. And at the end of the Old Testament, we actually sang about it a minute ago. We sang about 400 years. Did you catch that? We sang something about 400 years, and a baby's cry broke the cycle. What is that 400 years? But at the end of the Old Testament, like the prophets had been saying all along, hey, he's coming, the Savior's coming. You get to the end of the Old Testament, then there were 400 years of silence. And you know what happened 400 years ago? I, I just did that. Like, I was thinking the other day, I was like, 1620 sticks out of my head. The Mayflower came to America. you believe that? You guys aren't as impressed with that. I thought it was pretty cool. It was actually in November. It was last month. It was like 400 years ago, the Mayflower landed on our shores, which I thought, that's a long time. <laughs> Can you imagine not hearing a peep? or whisper, or anything for 400 years, do you think you'd start to lose hope a little bit? Yeah, Israel's starting to lose hope. Would this Savior ever come? Would God's promises ever come true? And we can feel the same way in our waiting. And yet the good news of Christmas is into that darkness, the babies cry, right? God comes. So, But with this terminology and all these Old Testament prophecies being quoted, what is Matthew saying? Is there a bigger point that Matthew's trying to make in his, in his account here, in his gospel account. Well, if you, if you know the Old Testament, Israel had quite a history in the land of Egypt. Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph, would be sold into slavery by his deadbeat brothers. Remember that? He's taken down to Egypt. He actually rises to the top a little bit in Egypt. His brothers end up going back down to him because there's a famine in the land, and they can get some food from him, and they actually stay there. And Israel would grow there and be made slaves in Egypt. And this is, if you've heard of the Old Testament and the story, maybe you've heard of Moses, this is when Moses comes up on the scene and he says to Pharaoh, let my people go, right, in the book of Exodus. And to cut to the chase, by applying, you see what Matthew's doing here, by applying Israel's story now to Jesus, Matthew is beginning to make a case to say this. This is what Matthew's saying. Jesus is the true Israel. And if you look closely, you'll see that he retraces Israel's story, and yet in every place they failed, Jesus succeeded. We'll say that again. Matthew's saying this, Jesus is the true Israel. And if you look closely, you'll see that he actually retraces Israel's story, yet in every place they failed, Jesus succeeded. 
Because remember, Israel had failed as God's son. They didn't obey the covenants. They weren't righteous. They weren't the channel through which salvation went to all the nations, which was God's plan from the beginning back in Genesis 12. And so I apologize if you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament, because I'm assuming a level of, of kind of knowledge of the biblical story of the Old Testament as we run through these, because we don't have a lot of time. But I want to walk through the parallels between Israel's story and Jesus' story. Okay? So first, Israel went down to Egypt in slavery. And here we see Jesus actually goes down to Egypt under the threat of persecution and death. You see them both go down to Israel. God rescued Egypt, rescued Israel out of Egypt during the Passover. And here God symbolically delivers Jesus up out of Egypt. Right here in this text. So they both go down to Egypt. They both come out of Egypt. Well, after being rescued in the Old Testament, Israel would pass through the Red Sea. Remember that? Right? Moses part of the water. They pass through the Red Sea. That's a, a baptism of sorts, where they become God's people. Well, Jesus, when he began his public ministry, would pass through the waters of baptism too. And God would speak from heaven, and he would say, this is my beloved what? Son. There's that term again, right? This is my beloved son. So they both go down to Egypt. They both get delivered up out of Egypt. They both pass through the Red Sea, through this baptism, right? After the Red Sea, what did Israel do? Anybody remember? They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And what happened out there in the wilderness for 40 years? They were tested by God. And they failed. They were actually like, I wish we could go back to Egypt. And they grumbled their way. And they committed idolatry time after time in those 40 years. Well, Jesus, what happened? Right after he passed through the waters of baptism, the Spirit sent him, drove him out into the wilderness, it said, for how long? 40 days. And what happened when he was in the wilderness for 40 days? He was tempted. He was tested. Right? And yet the difference is he passed the test every time. And each time he did, he quoted Deuteronomy three times. He's quoting uh, the Old Testament, not failing the test. So they both get out of Egypt. They both come out of Egypt. They both pass through the baptism. Right? They both go out into the wilderness. Israel for 40 years where they failed. Jesus for 40 days. He passes. While they're out there, God fed the people with manna. Jesus says, well, I'm going to feed you myself. I'm the true manna from heaven to feed your souls. Israel had 12 tribes through whom God would primarily work his redemption through. Jesus calls 12 disciples to himself to primarily work through. After the wilderness, Moses goes up on a mountain, on Mount Sinai. He receives the law of God to go down and give it to the people. After this, Jesus goes up and gives the what? The Sermon on the Mount. And he gives a new law where he says, Moses said this, but I say this. Israel would ultimately go into exile for their sins, and on the cross, God would send Jesus into spiritual exile for our sins. That's a lot, right? You see, my kids love American Ninja Warrior. It's like binge watch that. It's the most amazing thing. I'm trying to keep them off Friday Night Smackdown because they really like that too. I'm trying to stick to American Ninja Warrior, right? And all these guys attempt the same course, but only like a couple of them succeed. And here it's as if Jesus goes through the same course as Israel, but he succeeds in every place that they fail. And he brings salvation to the world through his life, through his perfect obedience and his atoning death and his resurrection. He's the true, faithful son of God, right? Who perfectly lives out and fulfills the calling that was first given to Israel. Isaiah 9 says, to us a son is given. And you've probably heard this before, right? Everything begins to jump out. He's the true temple, the dwelling place of God. He's the true lamb, the sacrifice, the lamb's point to. 
He's the true prophet. He's the word of God. He's the priest who makes an intercession for us. He's the true king. All of the Old Testament is driving us to and pointing us to Jesus. Right? The Bible is just it's one story, and it's all connected to, driving to, and finds its fulfillment in Jesus. So Old Testament Israel isn't some random precursor that has little to nothing to do with Jesus. That's how I read the Old Testament growing up. But when you read it through this lens of the gospel, him being the true Israel, everything begins to connect and make sense. He's the true long-awaited son of God, the true Israel. Now, what does this have to do with us? I'm glad you asked. Well, I watched Home Alone 2 the other night. And if you haven't yet, you need to do it, because you've only got a few days left. But actually, that movie's good all year. Uh, we were watching Home Alone 2, and near the end, little Kevin is sitting down, and he's talking to the bird lady. Remember the bird lady? All the pigeons, and they're having this deep heart-to-heart, I guess it's Central Park, or something like that, and they're just dropping this like deep wisdom on one another in the park. And he's been alone, right? New York City's running the streets and everything. And the bird lady says, so what are you going to do what are you doing alone on Christmas Eve? You did something wrong? And Kevin says, well, I did a lot of things. And then she said, do you know that a good deed erases a bad deed? And he said, well, it's late. I don't know if I'll have enough time to do enough good deeds to erase all my bad ones. And then she said, well, it's Christmas Eve. Good deeds count extra tonight. Think of an important thing you can do for others and go do it. Now, I would say that seems to be kind of the general spirit of Christmas culturally, right? Like, do something good. For someone else, which is, okay, great, that's that's fine. But often, deep down, maybe we believe that too. right? We're wired to believe that maybe by doing good, we can make up for our wrongs. So that a good deed can erase a bad deed. Maybe I can do enough good to outweigh the bad. But you see, that's the whole point of all these failures of the Old Testament. I mean, they're complex characters. They had a lot of, a lot of, a lot of top ten moments, like ESPN top ten moments the Old Testament characters did. There's a lot of not top ten. It's like the not top 100, right? Adam failed, David failed, Solomon failed, Israel failed. And kind of what it's driving home is to say, even if you had a million chances to complete the course perfectly, you fail every time. I mean, do you really think that, that your good deeds, even if they count extra, as the wise bird lady said on Christmas Eve, would actually outweigh every, outweigh every evil thought and word and deed you've ever done? Listen, we don't need a second chance to complete the course. Right? We, need a, we need a rescue. We need a hero who has run the course for us in our place and completed it flawlessly and actually wants to sweep us up into that victory of his, into that great redemption story and make us new. That's the gospel. The gospel is not instruction. It's not a second chance. It's the grace of what Jesus has done for us. Pastor Tim Keller said uh, his little book called Hidden Christmas. That's really good. Uh, he said the message of Christmas is not that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. He was saying in response to a New York Times article that said that was the point of Christmas, that we can do that. That's the message. He said, no, that's not the message of Christmas. Actually, it's the exact opposite. It's that we're lost and without hope and unable to heal ourselves, and yet there is hope because light has entered into our darkness from the outside. And that's why Jesus came. And that's why everybody started singing when he showed up. When you read the birth narratives in Luke, angels are singing, old men are singing, young women, shepherds, the low, the high, everyone, because good news was being proclaimed of what God had come to do for us. No one would have started rejoicing and singing if the message was, 
God saying, okay, I'm going to press the reset button and let's see if you can get it right this time. No one would have sang about that. Right? This was news of what God came to do for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. And that's the picture that Matthew's painting. Right? Jesus doesn't just succeed in every place where Israel failed. He also came to succeed in every place where we failed. And so in Jesus, by grace through faith, not what we do, the gospel is so much better than what I thought it was growing up. I thought the gospel was Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Hey, home run, right? Great. We're forgiven through his death. But I thought that was the reset button, and it was my job to get it all right and make myself look good in God's eyes or fill that bank account back up with my own goodness. And yet, the gospel is not only that we're forgiven through his death, but we're made completely righteous through his obedience, too. That he completed the course, which means if you're in Jesus, you can't improve or lower your status in God's eyes. And until you grasp that by faith, you'll never have rest for your soul. And that's the gospel. God's great story of redemption was never just for Israel, it was for the whole world. And the good news of the gospel is that when we, we, we repent and believe, God gives us his spirit, and he also makes us, guess what? Sons of God. Israel's the son, son of God, right? Jesus is the true son of God. And then he brings us into that family and says, you're made sons of God, children of God, Galatians 4 says. Changing our hearts to live a life of obedience, not to prove ourselves, not to earn ourselves a place with God, but out of gratitude for what he's done for us. And this is why the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he calls the New Testament church that's made up of Jews and Gentiles the Israel of God. Galatians 6. In chapter 3, verse 29, he says, If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You see how it all ends. We become spiritual Israel. And the news is even better. The news is even better. The good news is that he's coming again to complete what he started. So we rejoice at his first coming. We cry out for him to come again. And so with that spirit, let's go to the Lord in prayer uh, this evening. Father, thank you uh, for your word. Um, Father, thank you that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear uh, by your Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would open our eyes to the wonders of your big, great story, which is what the Bible is, of how you made us and you wandered and yet you sought us and you brought us back. You came all the way down. We didn't meet you halfway. That's what Christmas says. You came all the way down to the lowest place to lift us up. Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you have completed the course, so to speak. Like we've been tempted and tried, and we've failed. And so we don't need a second chance. We need a Savior. We need grace, which is what the gospel is. So thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the glory of Christmas, not just the disruption and the event in and of itself of Jesus coming, but because of what he did in his life, and death, and resurrection, and what he's coming to do again. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray.